All right, here we are. And by here, I mean in New Haven, in our lovely New Haven studios at uh, Gateway Community College. And by we, I mean the panelists for the nose today. And that would be Lucy Gelman, editor of uh, the Arts Paper and host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink. And Mercy Quay, founder and principal consultant for the Narrative Project and a columnist with Hearst Connecticut Media Group. I would like to make an announcement right now, which is that if you read one of my columns in Hearst Media Group and it upsets you and you feel as though you need to respond to it, that column was written by Mercy, <laughs> and you should contact her directly. Okay, uh, and then Pedro Soto is an aerospace executive working on a secret project, which may or may not involve Mercy Quay going into space. Uh, we're not really in a position to say that right now. So let me just tell you one th- one contextual thing, which was so that we, had Jonathan and I, Jonathan McNichol McPants McDiver Pants, uh, and I, uh, who's the producer of the show, uh, had a discussion. One might even say a disagreement. Uh, last week about what this episode of The Nose should be about. He felt it should be about The Lion King because The Lion King is here to blot out the sun and completely <laughs> consume everything that we own. Uh, and I I had just seen this piece by the New York Times two film critics who they were enumerating the best movies so far in 2019. And I hadn't seen any of the movies, despite the fact that I go to a lot of movies, especially because of this show. And I thought, you know, all these small independent movies, like some of them, they don't even show around here. But I mean, the ones that do, I don't know, we don't really get to them. And instead, we're, I don't want to go see The Lion King. That's what I started (laughs) yelling. I don't want to see The Lion King like some little kid, you know. Uh, And so what we did was we uh, said that we would go see each each of us would go see at least one from a list of three independent movies. I saw three of them because having thrown a temper tantrum, I felt like I should toe the line after that. Uh, and so we're going to get to all that in just a second. But we've got some other things that we're going to talk about first, including an article in the Washington Post that works off, a, I believe, a, a new book uh, called Burn the Ice, the American Culinary Revolution and Its End. Uh, by a James Beard award-winning food journalist, Kevin Alexander. His thesis and the thesis of Laura Riley's article in the Washington Post is that we have been through a golden age of restaurant expansion, uh, and now it may be coming to an end. A variety of factors are coming toward it, and certain kinds of dining experiences, probably the kind of middle zone, the fast casual zone, the the zone of non-luxury but non-budget restaurants may be the ones that are facing the biggest challenges and that may be going out of business and there's going to be shrinkage. So, uh, Pedro, I know you to be (laughs) a great foodie. Yes. Um, so um, I tell you wear it with pride. Uh, so start us out here. How did you? How are you processing that idea that's been advanced? I mean, I I, I see it. Um, you know, I, I've I, I travel uh, for work. Get nice and close to that. Yeah, I travel for work, and uh, you know, I'm 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 in different cities, and I see a lot of the same types of restaurants, which are all very good. Um, but I definitely have a sense that there's some sort of saturation in terms of that kind of middle market, you know, exposed filament, light bulb, gastropub type restaurant. Um, and at some point, there'll be too many and, and there'll be a contraction. But um, I'm, I am a little sad because I think that the average restaurant in 2019 um, in that level is much, much better than it was 20 years ago. So I'm sad. Right. I mean, one of the things that this article posits is kind of a demographic shift, mm-hmm. Mercy, that um, 
that that says that this kind of we're we're about to go through a period where baby boomers and people a little bit younger than baby boomers are going to a little bit age out of the restaurant scene. Uh, they're going to be like me, old and tired, and they don't want to go out, and maybe they don't have as much money as they used to have. And meanwhile, the millennials aren't ready. They're still paying off their college loans. Uh, they don't have enough money to go, you know, to a restaurant where the entrees are twenty twenty five bucks, except on a really special occasion. So that there's just this little valley that's coming. So as a certified young person, <laughs> she is totally certified. By the way. I am. Yeah. No, for sure. Um, uh, the certifying body, I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> International <laughs> Association of Young People. There it is. Um, so I think that these restaurants won't actually ever go away because while millennials are sort of stuck in the place of we are either struggling to pay our rent or our mortgages or we are still living at home why there while there sort of is that that um expectation of what a millennial is experiencing right now what i like that this uh article suggests is that there's the middle ground between folks who go out for ex- uh for the experience of dining out and then those who go out for the convenience and i think millennials have cornered the market on needing to go out for convenience right something quick and I don't think that we are able to project out enough to say that, yes, you know, $19 for a burger is more expensive than buying an entire case of burgers, but I need this now. And when you sort of, when that interacts with the desire for the experience of, you know, the mason jar water um, (laughs) and and also water being served from, you know, previously used bourbon bottles, shout out to Rudy's, (laughs) (laughs) right? I, I think that we might have made sure that Applebee's will go out of business, but the Rudy's and the bars of the world will stay here forever. I mean, you know, Lucia, I, I want—I know you have just have things you want to say, but let me just add one thing to whatever it is you want to say. Okay, great. Which is, I feel like geographically, we're sort of in a weird area. Like, I think this ar- article, you know, it's sort of about the dining scene in Washington and maybe by extension in, in, in New York and Atlanta and Miami and uh, all their equivalents on the West Coast and in between. You know, New Haven kind of had, oh, 20 years ago, New Haven had much less of a dining scene. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I mean... It was not the case 20 years ago that there weren't any restaurants in New York or Washington, but there kind of almost weren't. And there kind of almost weren't in Hartford, too. I mean, we've benefited, I think, as Pedro was suggesting, mm-hmm. by from a restaurant explosion yeah. that ma- means that we don't that there aren't like two or three restaurants for us to pick from. We have what what we've I will say dining in New Haven is a really exciting experience because there are a lot of good restaurants. And I think to the best of their ability, many chefs understand that one, the cost of being in a building in New Haven is actually quite expensive. Rent here is not cheap, but also that their patron base may not be able to shell out something like 30 or 35 bucks for I don't know, the latest prune scented air on <laughs> on top of their, uh, you know, like grass fed veal burger or, or whatever it is. Um, or the latest veal scented air on top of their prune burger. Yeah, so <laughs> ex- exactly, exactly. And so I, th- I think, yes, that's very much true in New Haven. But I want to say two things about the article. The first is, I don't know. If I and I am saying this as someone who loves food and has a lot of friends and colleagues who are in the food industry, I don't know if it's specifically a bad thing that we are saying you have to be a little bit better 
mm-hmm. to survive mm-hmm. in this industry. Oh, yeah, for sure. That said, I also think things like Uber Eats and, and then Yelp. Um, so there's a documentary now out. It came out earlier this year called Billion Dollar Bully. And it's about Yelp and the fact that Yelp has shut restaurants down sometimes because of a couple negative reviews. So I'm not saying... You know, if a restaurant's just getting off its feet and it messes up a meal, that's grounds for it to close. I actually really don't believe Mm -hmm. that, and I I would love to see a grace Mm -hmm. period. But I also think that the question of regionalism within this article is really important. My first thought was not actually New Haven. It was Michigan, Um, so the Detroit and Dearborn, Michigan area, which is where I'm from. So in Dearborn, Michigan, you can go to a restaurant that is a James Beard rated, uh, awarded restaurant that has gotten a lot of accolades, and you can get an entire meal for four people for probably $25. So I actually think that um, I'm interested to know where this idea of the the death of the golden age of dining and, and the restaurant boom is actually targeting because in certain areas of the country, it, the argument just doesn't hold up. Right. I, I just want to say one thing about Yelp and TripAdvisor, which is actually I should say first of all that as somebody who has spent a lot of his life as a freelance writer, I ordinarily subscribe to Samuel Johnson's maxim: "None but a blockhead ever wrote except for money." And the, <laughs> the exception I make is TripAdvisor, where I write restaurant reviews for TripAdvisor. And the reason I do it is because the restaurant reviews are so bad on TripAdvisor. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that that baffles me is that people from America will go, you know, to Luca, Italy, and then rely on the restaurant recommendations of some guy from, you know, from Wyoming or something. You know, <laughs> I thought this was really good. And the servings are really portions are real big, you know. And I, I, I mean, the people who are writing these reviews, they don't know anything. Right. They know nothing. Right. They are not food <laughs> experts. Everywhere that you go probably has a local food blogger. You know, mm-hmm. uh, if you go to Montreal, there's Montreal Eater, and there's mm-hmm. like you know eight other food blogs for people. Who, and there's a restaurant critic named Leslie Chesterman who you can you know don't look at TripAdvisor. Mm-hmm. That's some idiot from Indiana, you know, who's there with his five screaming kids. And so, I do think that that's an area that where if that, that's really hurting restaurants, it's kind of a shame because I don't think. But I do. Pedro, I'm assuming you agree with Lucy, too, that in a way, if this spurs higher quality and innovation and maybe also people taking a little trip away from the restaurant district to find the new restaurant that just opened up in some place a little less Tony that's really doing something interesting. Yeah, I mean, I I think that I know the article was saying basically that the. You know, this might be the death of some of the innovation just because people may not be getting into it at the rate that they will because the failures will increase. But I do think that the competition for restaurants is so high, um, especially in places like New Haven, <laughs> that you have to be a good restaurant right. or you won't survive. I also, may I add two things really quickly? The, f- the first is that I think that we use these big words like radical authenticity and innovation <laughs> and creativity <laughs> And the truth is good food is good food. Yeah. Um, it, it's kind of like bad art is bad art at the end of the day. And, and good art is good art. And you can have very good food in a city that's at a reasonable price. I sound like my father. At a reasonable <laughs> price point. Um, but, but also that is not this overwrought, really pretentious right. food. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, always, I'm, I'm not always excited when I hear, oh, this restaurant's doing the most cutting edge thing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it is really, really cool um, to have, I don't know, your asparagus bisque or, or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but, but the other thing that this article touches on is we have all become, putting on my honorary Octo 
octogenarian hat, so dependent on the little devices in our hands that Mm -hmm. we're not talking to and asking locals. And so if -hmm. we can take something away that's greater from this article is, you know, talk to the folks who have lived here because they'll tell you what's good. And I I think that the... um these, I mean, you know, TripAdvisor, Yelp, Uber Eats, I think they're, they disrupt the natural equilibrium of restaurants, right? So I think in the same way that you have uh, spoken about how Yelp has shut down restaurants, there are stories about how Yelp has completely inundated small restaurants that Mm. do not have the capacity to take on their new attention, right? So I think, I I just think that um, they disrupt the natural equilibrium. But I also think that there's something really good about I mean, you know, the the phenomenon that we're seeing in this article that is that the consumers will um, appreciate, right? I mean, f- less competition mm-hmm. for restaurants and really just not pretentious food uh, that is approachable but authentic to whatever region we're in is always going to be really mm-hmm. good for the consumer. I can think of... Um, uh, Cajones, uh, CEO Jones on mm-hmm. State Street in New Haven, right? They introduced me to Brussels sprouts, yeah. right? <laughs> and I have enjoyed Brussels sprouts ever since. And, and now it everywhere. wasn't exactly, yeah. and now they're <laughs> everywhere. Well, uh, yeah, I always like it when they say, Have you eaten with us before? Yeah, if I say no, they'll go, well, we do things a little differently <laughs> here. <laughs> but, but, like, do I go get you food instead? Right. Like, usually you bring me food. Uh, that's the that's the, the matrix that I'm really familiar with. Well, I mean, you know, you mentioned Uber Eats, mm-hmm. Mercy. We should talk a little bit about this, too. I, I, I have to sort of almost drop out of the conversation because I have never used Uber Eats or Grubhub mm-hmm. or, I don't know, all those mm-hmm. places that deliver stuff to you. Like, if I'm going to eat at home, I, I'll cook something, you know. And then if I'm going to go to a restaurant, I'll go sit in it. But I don't know. You millennials, you may have a No, I frequently time. order from Uber Eats until um, April 16th when I decided to stop. And that was because, uh, so what they, so um, we were in the backyard, we're doing uh, housework and we order Uber Eats and you can put in the instructions. We are in the backyard, right? And the courier comes, rings the doorbell and doesn't drop off the food. Uber Eats does not refund $60 of, wow. right, and doesn't send back out the food. So I think that when, when we're talking about the intersection between convenience and experience, Uber Eats does not meet that <laughs> second, right, uh, the, the, the mm-hmm. uh, experience piece. Yeah, I use Uber Eats and, um, and Grubhub, although a lot of it's because I get uh, a credit on my credit card for it. So hmm. it kind of subsidizes it, um, but it's expensive. Really expensive. Right. The, the 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 fees are, you know, they're like twenty percent of the meal. It, it, I'm, I'm Certainly, amazed. the cost of gas. Yeah. To get to wherever you or, wanted to order from. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, a lot of the restaurants have to change their menus around to sort of bake in those kinds of prices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't know. I don't think it's a good thing. But I mean, Lucy, that gets to that question too. Why are we going out to eat? Are you, mm-hmm. I think you, you set this one up. Is it convenience or is it because we want to gather with people and have an experience or you know, go someplace and be in an environment where we'll have a conversation that's different from the one we have at home? It's both. I, mm-hmm. I think it's both. Um, I, I think I would love to say that I subscribe to the uh, only to the model of going out because I want to have a really lovely experience with my friends or with my partner. But the truth is, uh, as someone who keeps weird hours and is sometimes reporting late at night, it makes sense for me to go to, for instance, Takeaway, which is mm. a, a smaller chain, but it's in New Haven and Boston, and to pick up a meal that I know is going to be relatively healthy, where I'll probably have leftovers for the next day. That's 
probably going to run me a little bit more money right. than going to the grocery store and picking up groceries that I know I don't have in my fridge, but I'm going to end up having dinner at the end of the night. And so it, um, it I think, unfortunately or fortunately, it's both. Um, and, and also speaks to the fact that home cooking has been in this huge slide for many, many, many years. I think over a decade at this point. Um, you know, Michael Pollan was decrying the death of home cooking, I think, in the early 2000s. And so that's another thing that's in this equation that we're dealing with. Not for me and Pedro, it's not. <laughs> oh, no, Especially that completely Pedro. applies to me. Yeah. I mean, there's this one line in the article that says, people aren't going to suddenly learn how to cook in the next three years. That spoke to me. I am mm -hmm. now delivered because someone understands me, right? <laughs> I, I, I think... Though here in New Haven, um, the community that we have, right, I think the experience, the paying a little bit more for the experience of going out is worth it because we have such a great community of bartenders and of other restaurant goers that every single time you go out, you're going to run into someone you know. Mm -hmm. So, right, I, I can shout out June at Rudy's yeah. because I frequent there, right? Like, or Jessica at Woodbridge Social, and I can shout out a number oh, of yes. bartenders, right, that I think. <laughs> really add to the atmosphere and culture here in New Haven that we've been able to cultivate. All right. We have to quickly switch gears. We think restaurants are not going to die out. Uh, <laughs> and probably we just got them here in Connecticut. There were no restaurants here <laughs> until I think about None. 1999, I think. That was the first restaurant ever started in Connecticut. So, <laughs> um, so we're going to switch gears. Uh, there is uh, another uh, food-oriented holiday tradition uh, where children go and ring the doorbells of total strangers who give them candy, uh, which if you try to launch that idea now, I think everybody would say, well, there's so many things <laughs> wrong, wrong with, with this, you can't do it. But uh, it is Halloween, and people do it, and yet there's a new push uh, afoot, and, and that push mercy is to move Halloween away from October 31st yeah. uh, to the last weekend uh, in the month for all kinds of uh, safety-oriented reasons, and there's a change.org petition out right now <laughs> oh, because that's what change.org is really for. Uh, and so uh, what do you make of all this? I think this is a great idea. I think we should treat <laughs> Halloween like we treat Thanksgiving, right? We understand that Thanksgiving is the third Thursday <laughs> of the month, and we have the day after it off. And I think that that more than any other holiday, is what increases safety around Thanksgiving, having the day after Thanksgiving off. And so if we won't do that for Halloween, <laughs> we the least we can do is have it on the weekend. I, if it's not clear, am Team Halloween. <laughs> Although, Pedro, I understand that you are Team Halloween. Yes, I like day. it. I like it yes. now with an opposing view. <laughs> equal time. It's like a real radio show. That's true. No, I... I, I no, no, don't <laughs> don't make it safe. Uh -oh. Don't make it convenient. That's what makes it fun. I mean, you know, you, you're when you're a kid and you're going out on Tuesday night to go get a lot of candy and you dress and, you know, your parents are coming home early from work. And, and it's just it's a really cool thing to see just something plopped in the middle of the week um, that everyone's doing and, and, and going around the neighborhood. And and yeah, is it dangerous? Of course it is. <laughs> You're walking in the middle of the, you know, at eight, you know, seven o'clock at night in, in, in the dark. Uh, but it's, it's fun. And, and I think it's like, you know, the more we prescribe these, these events to make them more convenient, the less we're taking away of just it being that really spontaneous fun thing. I also don't think that this move is going to make the holiday safer, <laughs> right? I mean, I think we all we all operate with some sort of caution if we're going to a Halloween party on a Tuesday versus if we're going to a Halloween party on a Friday night, right? We're not 
we're not getting completely inebriated and driving home the next day, <laughs> right. right? Because it's a Tuesday night and most of us are responsible enough. But can I also just uh, read to you the mission statement from the nonprofit organization who is pushing for this change? Mm-hmm. The uh, organization is the Halloween Costume <laughs> Association. And their mission <laughs> is to promote and grow a safe celebration of Halloween and year-round costumed events. I didn't know I needed this in my life. <laughs> I think I found my calling. Mercy's actually pl- applied to be executive director <laughs> Already. of the Costume Association, so it's, things are moving fast here. So Lucy, as we took a little perambulation around uh, Gateway College earlier today, told me that she didn't really care about this. I don't really care. <laughs> I um, that, So it's a, it's a little more complex than that, but mostly I just don't care at all. Um, As a reporter, I actually really enjoy covering Halloween. I love events where I can talk to small kids about what they like want to do when they grow up, what the best part of a night is and why they've chosen a costume. That's actually really, Mm -hmm. really fun. Um, That's and I love covering trunk or treats, which New Haven Uh, actually does really mm, well. Mm. Oh, unpopular. You have to explain what it is. now. So so trunk or treats are where uh, a group and in New Haven, the Department of Parks, Recreation and Trees actually does this. uh, decorates a bunch of cars usually in like cobwebs and pumpkin designs and they fill the trunks with candy and the idea is that some parents don't feel safe bringing their kids out in their neighborhood they actually started in very rural America where houses were too far apart for kids to trick or treat and so a bunch of kids were saying well I can't partake in this tradition that a bunch of my other peers around the country are doing um There's a huge one every year in Edgewood Park, and then a number of the police substations in New Haven do them. I am not uh, pro-cop, as I'm saying this at all, but it's actually something where I think the New Haven police do a good thing when they do this, and I I just want to shout out Sergeant Monique Colon, who who does it in New Hallville every year. yeah, it's it's something that I like. I kind of feel like Hollow Hollow Weekend is already a thing. It's just not officially a thing. So I, I feel like people have those bangers and those crazy parties anyway, and they dress up as all sorts of things, you know, well into their 30s, 40s, 60s, whatever. Um, so, so for me, maybe I feel not strongly about this because I already see it happening. Right. I, I think, think it's important to celebrate, separate children's Halloween and cosplay. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, for mm. sure. <laughs> I, I do think you've stumbled upon the politics of Halloween weekend, Uh-oh. right? I think that because Halloween typically, uh, more often than not, uh, falls within the week, like a Tuesday or Wednesday, yeah. right? Because of that, there is always the weekend before parties and mm-hmm. the weekend after parties, right? And because of that, right, everyone mutually sees that n- none of us get the officiality of the actual day, right? Mm. We just, we, we see th- to the fact that this is a Saturday party and we're, we're just, you know, keeping, we're observing it today. <laughs> but what will happen? What will happen when all the parties have to happen on a Saturday or Friday? What that means is that weekend after parties will be relegated to the corner of obsolescence because, <laughs> <laughs> because... I don't know. You might be overthinking this. I, th- I think, I this think is- everyone should be overthinking Oh, no, Mercy. <laughs> I feel like this is a recipe for utter chaos. All right. That's so, what Halloween's about. As we wrap this up, I, I'm sort of on Team uh, Gelman agnosticism uh, about this. Although I will just very quickly tell a story from several Halloweens ago. I was coming home to my house, and my house is like, it's on the West Hartford, Hartford line, basically. And 
Uh, it was Halloween, uh, and I'm driving up the driveway, and these two kids uh, in these incredible bear costumes uh, at the top of the driveway. And then I realized these are bears. Uh, and <laughs> so I eventually get inside, and the bears are like circling around the house. And I call uh, the police, and I say, there's bears. And I tell them what my address is and stuff like that. And they say, well, yeah, we'll pass that along to the animal control officer. I said, you don't understand. There are children with food in their hands. <laughs> Lots of them. Hundreds and hundreds of children making high-pitched noises while waving sacks of candy around in the night air. People are going to die. <laughs> and they went, okay, well, we'll pass that along to animal control. So uh, anyway, that's my Halloween. <laughs> no, it turns out everybody was fine. So I don't know how that could, if could be. If Halloween was on a, fr- on, a, on a weekend, everyone wouldn't have been fine. So Right. Or they could have shot the beers with tranquilizers <laughs> and taken them someplace else. Who knows? <laughs> All right. We have to take a break so we can talk about movies. That's what we're going to do when we come back. All right. Yes, here we are in a wonderful New Haven, Connecticut, uh, with the nose. Our panelists today are Mercy Quay, Pedro Soto, and Lucy Gelman. So I kind of set this up at the beginning of the show, but I'll say it again that in some ways I, I wanted to rebel a little against – uh, the pervasiveness of the Lion King and the pervasiveness of everything that's kind of behind the Lion King, which is Disney, which sort of owns everything now. Uh, and so we did all go see uh, small indie movies. But uh, we probably should talk before we get to those indie movies a, a little bit about that, uh, about the degree to which, Pedro, we are <laughs> living in a world which is culturally controlled, <laughs> at least the cinematic and perhaps the TV part of our world is controlled by one massive entertainment syndicate in a way that maybe it, it never has been the case before. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, and, and with uh, Disney just uh, closing on purchasing Fox Entertainment, I mean, they own a pretty significant slice of of pop culture uh, at the moment and a lot of properties. And it's interesting to see what they're doing with them. Um, I think actually, and I think we're going to talk about this, the Marvel experiment by and large has been a success. Um, the rehashing and remaking of Disney movies just knifes me <laughs> in the <laughs> heart. I can't stand it. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, with, with, with Star Wars and Lucasfilm kind of what they're going to do if they end up squeezing the life out of that over the next 10 years or, or doing some interesting things with it. Right. It's so big. And, you know, Lucy, one of the articles that we read um, uh, or that Mm -hmm. was circulated to us, in the middle of it, there was a mention of somebody who's directing, I don't know, one of the next phase five Marvel franchise things or something. And it said, this will be directed by Chloe Zhao, who directed The Rider. You know, The Rider was a movie I really wanted to see, and I saw a couple promos for it and everything. And then I don't, I like it might have played in my market for about a week. And to me, there's a story about the movies that people were making or acting in before they got the call from mm-hmm. Marvel, before mm-hmm. they got to call, you yeah. know, it's like, yeah. and all of those people are sort of not, are they are less available to make that other kind of movie now. That's true. I mean, the example that immediately jumps to mind is Taika Waititi, yes. who mm-hmm. is an incredibly virtuosic filmmaker who's who was making very interesting smaller films, um, Hunt for the Wilder People, Hunt for the Wilder People. Excuse me, I know it was one of them. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think that's true. Um, I think a lot of people are really getting behind Marvel. They're really excited about Marvel. And, 
Yeah, I, I, I don't, I kind of have an agnosticism toward this, although my love for small films and, and small filmmakers does burn very bright. I mean, I, I did see all three of these mm. independent movies we're about to talk about. When I went to see the third one, Mercy, it was at a multiplex where I couldn't really get up to the window to buy tickets because so many people were trying to buy various kinds mm. of Lion King tickets. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought they should almost have a separate line if you're like not going to go see those if you actually are interested in a movie that isn't part of some huge advertising push. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have that problem here in New Haven because uh, I think what happens for Criterion is everyone flocks to whatever the big picture film is, Mm -hmm. the one that they are showing, Mm -hmm. right? Because they mostly like to show um, a lot lot more of these uh, smaller shop films, which I really appreciate about Criterion. So I didn't have that problem when I went to Criterion to see Marianne and Leonard, uh, Words of Love. In fact, I had the opposite problem. Mm. I was the only person <laughs> in <laughs> line and in the theater to go see uh, the documentary that I went to go see. Um, if I can actually just jump right into Jump into it. Jump. So um, I, one criticism that I have of every movie, whether it's a documentary or you know a work of fiction, is I hate it. I loathe it. I think it is lazy when anyone in the film world, well, in documentaries, when the documentary is named something that the people interviewed have said, right? Mm. Or in the film when the actor says the name. Says the title. Says the title, right? So, I mean, Tom Cruise is very, very guilty of this. We're talking Vanilla Sky, Minority (laughs) Report. He does this all the time. Also, he says Jack Reacher a lot. (laughs) I noticed that. I I picked that up, actually. He says Jack Reacher. It's so bad. But uh, so I walked into this, and I I thought that it was beautifully done in some ways and then very lazy and comical in other ways. Um, There were sloppy jump shots all over the place. It is, let me give you a quick synopsis, it is a documentary about the tragic love story between... um, between a woman named Marianne and uh, Leonard Cohen. Um, uh, Marianne was Leonard's uh, Grecian, or I guess I'll say Greek, Greek muse. From Although she's actually Norwegian, but she, but right, men, she was men Nor- on the island of Hydra. In Greece, right. So, um, and it is tragic, not just, not actually because either of them died in their love story. They actually lived very long lives. It is tragic because uh, they... Uh, <sighs> The, their love died over the course of several decades. It was sort of this this prolonged death of their love, and it was their love of Hydra, the island that they met on, their love of drugs, right? Mm. Their love of music. Every piece of it sort of died over decades. I think it was beautifully told. I think there were certain sections of the of the story that were comical, like for instance. Um, uh, Marianne's every time they talked about Marianne's son who was sort of a casualty of their love they just had a photo of him and they spent a good 10 seconds slowly zooming in on his photo <laughs> the <laughs> right? Ken and, Burns effect the Ken Burns yeah. effect for, and I, I would say 10 seconds is too short I, I, I was sitting looking at <laughs> this photo for easily 15 to 20 seconds while they talk about how he was a casualty of their love story <laughs> it was good in a lot of ways but I don't know if this was um, if I would see this sort of documentary again I, I will say I also saw the documentary. Uh, a couple of points that I would make. First of all, I don't know because did did it dawn on you? Because it very easily couldn't, and maybe even it shouldn't have dawned on you that one of the people who was talking a lot about Marianne was the accurate actual documentary filmmaker, and yeah. that they had a really see. I, like I, even though I've seen a lot of Nick Broomfield documentaries. It, I, somehow or other, it was getting past me that he, he kept talking about his relationship with Marianne. Right, and 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 that's another thing. It's sort of confusing because um, 
it is from the point of view of the documentarian and then also they ebb, they sort of thread throughout the rest of the documentary um, different speakers, but they don't immediately disclose what the relationship is to Marianne. So it's very confusing to follow in that way. And it doesn't become clear until the end where um, the filmmaker is in front of the camera now. S- at several times throughout the throughout the film, we hear him talking to the people he's interviewing from behind the camera, which is another thing he does that I do mm. not like. Um, I will quickly say about the movie, and we'll get on to some of these other uh, indie movies, that um, Leonard Cohen is kind of both a wave and a particle, and it's hard to look at him <laughs> both ways. And so this movie tries to look at him as a particle, and the particle that is the title suggests, uh, the t- that is it has this long-term muse-like relationship with this woman named Marianne. The problem is he's also a wave, and, and, and he, there are a lot of ways mm-hmm. in which his – just the magnitude of Leonard Cohen's story, which is an incredible story, keeps taking over the movie and kind of pushing Marianne yeah. out in a way that's a, a little bit of a an allegory for the relationship for the, they right. actually, actually had. Uh, but his story, it's sort of interesting, too, because there are people in the movie theater who didn't know anything about Leonard Cohen, and so people would, they would come up, you know, that... At one point, his manager stole all of his money while he was in a Buddhist shrine. <laughs> and, and people go, wow, that's incredible. So uh, It's me. I'm people. I walked into this movie not knowing anything right. about Leonard Cohen. <laughs> Which is perfect, a perfectly good way to see a movie, I, I think, too. So anyway, I, I, I wasn't my favorite of the three, but I, I was somewhat captivated by it. But, I mean, I saw Leonard Cohen in one of his last tours and stuff. So uh, so who should we go to next? Because, like, Lucy made the weirdest choice. I did. It, it choice was least it was appropriate totally for Lucy. Based, it, it was wildly inappropriate for me, in fact. Um, it, it was completely based on my schedule <laughs> and what movies were showing when, which is perhaps not the way to choose a movie if you're going for pleasure. But um, but I thought, well, I need to get this in before the end of the week, and I have <laughs> writing to do. I'm on, on deadline. On, uh, yeah, I, I was on deadline for other assignments, so I saw The Art of Self-Defense with my partner, and uh, it is a movie in which uh, Jesse Eisenberg plays. Uh, how much do you, is it okay if I spoil this sort of a little well, bit? Well, I think a lot, I mean, you can't spoil all of it. He, I mean, he, so, so Jesse Eisenberg. Until the is, opening plot this, point. This will be shocking to people that he plays a neurotic young man who, um, I don't, I don't know, has like very little sex drive and a dead end job. I think, um, I think we can um, uh, help us spell out what a nebbish uh, the Jesse Eisenberg character is. Uh, his name is Casey, as you will find out in this clip. Hello? Hi, may I speak to Ms. Casey Davies, please? This is him. I'm a man. My mistake. I thought it was a woman's name. Who is this? I'm calling about your gun, the handgun. Wait, I remember you now. Yes, you are a man. Again, apologies. That's all right. It looks like your paperwork is going to go through without any complications. Tomorrow morning, you'll be able to come in and purchase your gun. Are you still there? I don't need a gun anymore. You're not having a child, are you? Because we sell child safety locks that work reasonably well. No, no child. I just... I found something else. Don't tell me you bought a knife. Knives are good for self-defense, too, but nine times out of ten, a person with a knife who gets into a fight with a person with a gun will lose. I didn't buy a knife. Well, the paperwork is valid for the next six months. In the meantime, I hope you don't get attacked by anyone with a gun. Or even a knife. Goodbye. Good luck. <laughs> so I like the I love the, the we sell child locks that work reasonably well. Yeah. Um, so um, 
So this is, I mean, I, I will say, I saw this movie too. I'm giving Lucy a chance to sneeze also. Um, that that uh, it was interesting seeing it in an audience because the audience, this movie is full of very dark humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were like people near me laughing at stuff that, kind of alarmed me that they were laughing at it even though I knew it was comically intended well well I will say two things about this movie it it hits the mark as a dark comedy it is a very very dark comedy and there were points in the movie when I laughed out loud mm-hmm. um, like to the point where other folks in the theater were like turning around um, but I also so this is a movie very much about toxic masculinity and a, and a dark comedy about toxic masculinity so this character is um is physically assaulted and then uh, chooses to take karate classes. Hence, the title "The Art of Self The Art of Self Defense." Yes. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah? Um, and uh, and sort of everything that unfolds in this in, in this world becomes partially uh, just this great funny send up of Fight Club. And I was mm-hmm. very aware of that. But but then also this commentary on masculinity that is both spot on and was just very difficult for me, especially when comedy. Um, starts involving a gun it's really hard for me to watch i have a a, like a physical and visceral reaction when i see a gun on screen i I really find that very difficult um and so this movie made me squeamish uh in in ways that i was not really ready to be squeamish um i i also will say i surprisingly felt a parallel with a doll's house part two which is a very popular show by lucas nath um, that takes uh, sort of picks up where uh, Heinrich Ibsen left off in a doll's house. But um, I, I am so mansplained all the time in my job um, and deal with so much patriarchy on a day-to-day basis that I did not want to be at the movies seeing it and experiencing it. All right. So you might not be the you really weren't weren't the target demo for this. Movie. <laughs> no, I, I was the anti-target demo, anti-target. and you still laughed at it. So. I did. I did. There there are parts of it that are very funny, and boy, does Jesse Eisenberg do uh, sort of this existential neuroticism very well. Right, and then when he's being kind of converted to this new form of toxic masculinity, and he's told that he has to stop listening to adult contemporary music and listen to metal, and he has to stop taking German, French lessons, yeah. he has to speak German, and the German <laughs> lessons are all like, I am going to kick you in the head right now, or something like that. <laughs> right. uh, I mean, it really does get pretty funny at yeah. times, but in a very dark way. All right, yeah. so Pedro, you went to see Wild Rose. Yes. Do you want me to play the clip for Wild Rose first, or do you sure. want to set it up? All right, so uh, we, I'll set up the clip. Uh, <laughs> Wild Rose stars uh, Jesse Buckley as Rose Lynn, a, a person who lives in Glasgow and wants to be a great Nashville-style country singer. The wonderful Julie Walters uh, is her mother, Marion, mm-hmm. uh, and you are going to hear uh, a little conversation uh, uh, about um, well, I guess about the fact that uh, Rose, who's gotten out of prison, uh, has found a new employer named Susanna. She has something she wants to do with her new employer. Uh, Susanna's needing me in next week. Well, she can't have you. Kids are on holiday. You do it out for a week. I know, it, but... You said you'd take them away. Well, it's no, uh, it's no cleaning. I'm, I'd be doing it's rehearsing. What is, I'm doing this gig at her house and she's invited all these people and I'm going to perform at my band. And then, then they're going to invest. Invest? Invest in what? In me. In my career. In getting to Nashville. Oh. You don't remember her investing in Mary when she was in agony with her hip. 18-month waiting list. If she'd money to spare, she could have forked out in that. She's not forking it out. Just give me a chance to earn it. 
but it's got to be good, no pub band quality, and we haven't any long to put it together. And I, I phoned the school to see about Holiday Club, but it's all full up. And even if it wasn't it, I'd rather they were with you, you know, because I don't want them thinking that I've just... Oh, thinking what? You cast them off when you get a better offer. Or that all oh, this is for nothing because you've still got one foot out the door. I can help you. I haven't you booked the time off? So, Pedro, this is in some ways a familiar template. It's the young mm -hmm. musician with a dream, but the dreams are thwarted. Uh, there's not enough support. There's no clear avenue for the person to get what he or she wants. Although the fact that this particular person has had children, I think two children by the she, age of 18, yeah. it's one of the things that makes this movie a little bit different. It, it really does because it has the, the, has the dichotomy of, of her career and her responsibility to her kids um, and, and having to choose one over the other and you can see early in the movie that she's obviously tried to choose um her, the easy way out um there is a, a part where she she basically disavows that she has children um and hides that fact um but overall i mean i i love this movie <laughs> it was it was really sweet um it is the star is born template um but because it has a scottish sensibility and, and a lot harder edges um it's just it's a nice unique take on it um i do feel that it you know if it, if if the main character um if she wasn't just so wonderful charismatic and had such just an amazingly transcendent voice um there's a lot riding on her performance in the movie um i do feel in terms of a plot that she kind of is 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 pulled through the movie there's there's a little less agency in kind of how she gets through the movie um than uh, I would have liked, but overall, it, it's you know it's sweet. Um, it, it will show up, I can guarantee you, on Netflix. The algorithm will will find you, and you'll see it <laughs> bubble up on the top as you know trending movie. And and please do do see it. One quick observation: <laughs> uh, Jesse Buckley, who's the the pivotal the star of this mm -hmm. movie, and it is a star turn. This is a starring role. Uh, although Julie Walters is, as usual, amazing and yeah, great. Yeah, she's great. Uh, so one thing about uh, uh, Jesse Buckley is she's also in Chernobyl, in which she looks completely <laughs> different. Uh, but the way that she looks in this movie, and this will be have been lost on my New Haven uh, panel, is uncannily like Carolyn Payne, who's a regular yeah. panelist on the nose. <laughs> yeah. So much so that, I mean, I immediately sent an email to Carolyn Payne, and about a day later she said she was getting a lot more emails uh, <laughs> from other people who'd seen the movie. And just from certain angles, the resemblance is, is really, really startling. But, uh, but yeah, this is, and you know, I mean, I guess we don't really have time to get into this, but I mean, part of the conversation we need to keep having is, do you want to see this movie on Netflix? Mm -hmm. Or do you want to see this movie well, I mean, mercy, your experience, you might as well have been watching it on Netflix. You're sitting all alone yeah. in a movie theater. <laughs> um, uh, you know, but, you know, I would say uh, the L Lucy seeing the art of self-defense with a crowd is probably different from watching it on Netflix. Yeah, it's very different. And I, I was saying I actually want to uh, redact some of my agnosticism from er the earlier, earlier Marvel conversation and, and just say that uh, these live action movies these live action remakes of disney movies are garbage and so if the in my opinion mm -hmm. i'm getting a look from mercy but um i agree but uh, <laughs> so but but if the cost of that is that we have to as 
as citizens, as people who enjoy digesting entertainment, think a little bit more about how we're going to support smaller films and independent filmmakers. I do think there's a very specific experience that you get from going to a film and seeing a film in a theater on a big screen as opposed to on your laptop or computer. All right, we've got to stop it there. We'll take a wee break. <laughs> we'll come back. We'll make some endorsements and recommendations. Hey, it's me. The one-dimensional female character from this indie movie And I just want to drink beer And be near all of your one-dimensional guy friends All right, we're back. Uh, this show has been uh, uh, produced and hosted uh, from our beautiful studios at the Gateway Community College in New Haven. Jonathan McPants and I have done this and with nobody's help at all, I don't think. Uh, well, I, Gene Amatruda did something, obviously. It would be impossible to do anything without Gene Amatruda. But thanks to everybody uh, else who helped out the part of Bill Curry, who's played by Jesse Eisenberg. We'll be back on Monday with the scramble. Uh, and meanwhile, we're going to make some uh, recommendations here. And so, who should go first? Mercy. You go first. Well, I mean, it is, it, it'll come as no surprise that all my recommendations are um, space themed. This week, I really struggled to figure out which ones I would do um, because, you know, the, with uh, the anniversary of um, the moon ra- um, moonshot. So, to commemorate that, there's a podcast. It's called Moonrise. It is basically the story, the the untold story about why we actually went to the moon. That's a really good one on um, Amazon. Prime right now, you can watch, if you haven't caught up on it yet, you can watch Star Trek um, uh, Discovery, which is, Hmm. I mean, it is a really good show. It stars Sonequa Martin-Green, who is a, um, who was one of the main characters in The Walking Dead, and she's now starring in um, Star Trek Discovery. It is it, it sort of is the own untold story about um, uh, the heroism of this untold ship discovery. Um, I, want I, I have something that I need to say about data, but I'm not going to say it right now because I think you're going to slap me. Okay. okay. Uh, off Keep air. going. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they actually even bring Christopher Pike back onto the show at one point. So if you are a Star Trek fan, feel free to um, dive into that one. Uh, and then finally, this is not, this is not space related at all but there is a podcast out by um, Rebecca Nagel who is um, known in the podcast circle for a number of things Um, it's called This Land it is the story about how a murder on a reservation between two native men um, ended up in front of uh, the Supreme Court and will decide the future uh, fate of the legitimacy of native lands across the nation and that's called again this land okay uh, so uh, by the way I've been told that Kion Wolf got the songs together that were used for bumper music so we didn't do it all by ourselves it took a village uh, <laughs> Pedro what have you got yes yeah, so um, in uh, at the Met in New York there are two exhibits actually one is space based uh, that are definitely worth visiting uh, the first is um, Apollo's Muse. It's a nice exhibit about basically people's impressions of the moon kind of prior and post moon landing, um, which is nice. But the real main attraction is um, it is Camp Notes on Fashion. And it is an amazing, amazing exhibit of um, the style, uh, the fashion style of camp uh, over the ages, um, you know, starting from the 1700s until today. Um, It's kind of scaffolded around Susan Sontag's notes on camp. Um, a small short article she wrote. Um, 
if you go, try to go when the Met is not busy because mm-hmm. it is just it is loaded with information and you'll be herded through when you're busy. We, we went when it was uh, pretty packed and you couldn't read a lot of the descriptions of the, and there's, it's, it's fashion. So there's a ton of just beautiful, amazing clothes. And then the end of the, the exhibit just opens up to this just giant black box filled with about a hundred dresses around the walls um, on two or outfits that are, you know, two levels deep. Um, and it's just, very cool. All so. right, we went, want to leave some time for Lucy Gilman. <laughs> Lucy Gilman, what have you got? Yeah, I have two quick ones. The first is an exhibition in New Haven. It's at Art Space New Haven. It's actually opening today, but it runs through September 14th, and it's called Collaboration, A Potential History of Photography. And what Art Space has done with this show is take folks who take fo- uh, photographs in their their regular lives, either they're photographers or they might be reporters. My partner is one of them, so I'm a little bit biased. Um, and they've asked them to give the camera to the people people that they're writing about or talking to or or taking pictures of uh, who then take pictures of them. It's a really interesting idea. It's curated by Laura Wexler and I think one other person. Um, it's uh, Artspace continually puts on really interesting shows. They also have a, a group show from a group of, I think, 23 or 24 young New Haveners that is a, a film of New Haven in the city symphony genre from the early 20th century. And then the other is the book Ghosts. It's a graphic novel by Raina Tegel. Meyer. Um, I hope I'm saying that correctly. It's about two sisters uh, who moved to Northern California for the younger sister's cystic fibrosis treatment. And it teaches, it's a, it's a kid's book. I'm reading it right now with a younger uh, kid. And it teaches kids about CF. It teaches kids about ancestor worship and some really beautiful aspects of Latinx culture as well. And I can't recommend it highly enough. Okay, I'll do two quick ones. Uh, read Jane Mayer's piece on the whole Al Franken controversy mm-hmm. in The New Yorker. It's long. It's terrific. It's really interesting. You'll wind up thinking about it differently. And uh, among restaurants, I wanted to rest- I wanted to recommend El Paso Mexican Restaurant in Plainville. Uh, this mm-hmm. is a family-run restaurant. Uh, it's very, very authentically Mexican. But here's another reason that we sometimes go to restaurants. This is a family-owned restaurant in which the uh, husband of the family was deported um, uh, and uh, uh, seized by by customs officials and deported. And so a lot of us are now going to the restaurant also to help support this family, uh, which has uh, lost a, a key member and to show maybe a different side of ourselves, too. So El Paso Mexican Restaurant. It's a terrific restaurant, but there's another good reason that you might want to patronize it. Thanks to Pedro Soto and Lucy Gelman and Mercy Quay, uh, who will be launched into space by Pedro Soto very soon. It's a secret project.